The following content is explicit. It's Friday, November 3rd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the wake of the Manhattan terrorist truck attack, Donald Trump, you know him, Donald Trump, president, launched an attack of his own. I am today starting the process of terminating the diversity lottery program. I'm going to ask Congress to immediately initiate work to get rid of this program. Diversity and diversity lottery. It does sound a little nicer when you don't pronounce it diversity twice. Diversity. Said it once, didn't think anything was wrong. Said it again. What is that, divesting in a nursery? Both Trump weighing in on Bo Bergdahl and Donna Brazile's Hillary Clinton revelations and the time he was blessedly mum for 11 minutes. Maybe we forgot about this. This is call to end the diversity lottery. And that's okay. We can forget it because he will forget it. In August, he unveiled his immigration policy. The RAISE Act, Reforming American Immigration for Strong Employment Act. He held a press conference. He endorsed the bill, and that bill would indeed scrap the diversity or diversity program. And then nothing, no follow-up, no effort to actually pass it or introduce it or take it up for a vote. He trots out Stephen Miller. Miller yells at reporters over the Statue of Liberty. Steve Bannon, signature issue, immigration soon leaves the White House with the brag that he'd be more powerful on the outside. Powerful as a thorn, a bee, a burr, but not as a crafter of legislation. You don't get more powerful than as a top advisor to the president. Well, except maybe when you're the top advisor to this president, a president deeply unserious or just incapable of passing real legislation. If you don't favor Trump's policies, his prattling on about ideas he can't pass are dispiriting for what they say about the democratic process, the waste that is represented by the Oval Office. If you do like his policies, his tactics are dispiriting because they're totally ineffective. The only one who seems to like what's going on is the president himself, who would rather have an argument than pass a law. On the show today, I spiel about a poll saying that this right now is the lowest point that Americans can remember. Now, granted, the poll was taken right after that Game of Thrones episode where the raven flies way too far, way too fast. Okay, it's a little grain of salt, but still. But first, with all the charges and indeed confirmations of sexual harassment by members of the media, uh, the right media, the left media, just simple pop culture media, I thought it would be a good time to discuss where we go from here and if women can have, uh, let's call it, an optimal reaction to workplace jerks. Erin Gloria Ryan is here to Erin Gloria Ryan explain things to me. Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Roger Ailes, Mark Halperin, I feel like this Bill is, O'Reilly? Yeah, Bill O'Reilly. I feel like this is the worst uh, Billy Joel song ever. But-
But with all the famous <laughs> men, media men, non-media men, who've been accused of sexual harassment, I've been, or confirmed sexual harassment, I've been a little reluctant to talk about it, only because I don't know that I have so much to add. Every once in a while here or there, there I will say, well, that might be interesting. So I wanted to have on Erin Gloria Ryan, and guess what? The dream has happened. Erin is a senior editor for The Daily Beast, a contributor to Crooked Media, contributor to SE Cup Unfiltered, contributor here right now. Hello, Erin. <laughs> how are you? Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. So I think that, you're welcome, I think that just on the facts, there's there's no debate. There's very little gray area with a lot of the accusations, but I want to get to a couple of the nuanced points or things that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. But before I do, are there any major points that you think in general we're missing. And when I say we, I don't mean idiots who deny this or people who will talk about witch hunts. I mean, you know, the general consensus, which is somewhere like, this is horrible, this needs to stop, it's good that people are talking now. Anything that we're missing? Yeah, I think that sometimes I'm hearing people talk about this, especially men talking about this to me because they don't want to talk about it publicly because they don't want to seem unwoke. Yeah. They're like, well, how do I ask someone on a date? How do I know what sexual harassment is? And I think that that is an important question for the next step in the conversation, Mm -hmm. but I think it misses the main point. And I think it misses kind of some big picture stuff about what we're seeing right now. So Harvey Weinstein and James Toback and Brett Ratner and all of these people that we're seeing kind of publicly named and shamed now, rightfully so, are people who did this to multiple women. You know, these men are doing it dozens to hundreds Mm -hmm. of times. So it's entirely possible that a small number of men are mass harassing a large number of women. Therefore, it makes sense that there are fewer men doing the serious harassing and abuse than there are women experiencing it, which is why I think that this moment, this kind of Me Too Weinstein fallout moment is important. It's important for the men in the majority who aren't doing this to realize that predators who are doing it over and over again have targeted a wide array of women. A lot of the backlash to this has been like, oh, wow, I didn't know men were all bad. I I really don't think that that's what the takeaway should be. The takeaway is that men who are bad take advantage of the fact that we don't expect all men to be bad. And abuse women over and over and over again. Um, There are a couple things that this sparks in my imagination. One is there is that stat about rapists and that some small percentage of rapists, you know, rape seven or more times. Mm -hmm. But then I've also seen the counter stat that says that if you define sexual assault more broadly, it's not really the few bad apples doing most of the raping. Mm -hmm. And also what you're talking about, I think, gets at the... The hashtag, you know, two hashtags ago, with which is yes, all women and mm-hmm. not all men. And so you're saying they both can be true. But there was also a backlash to that saying, mm-hmm. well, all men in some way countenance it or are part of the patriarchy. I think one of the things that this movement has shown is that a lot of men are ignorant, either willfully or just sort of through laziness. If, if you're a white man or if you're up at the top of the social hierarchy, then your view is the default view of the world. And you don't have to make enough. You don't have to see the world through other people's eyes. You don't have to empathize because everything is made for you. This is sort of forcing men to step outside of themselves and think of women as human beings. And so I think that that's good. I also think that, you know, we talk about the serious abuse, like the Weinsteins, the Roger Ailes, the Bill O'Reilly's. 
and then there's I think I think it's right to say that there's some gray area stuff that maybe more men than are comfortable admitting have participated in where maybe they were too persistent in romantically pursuing somebody or maybe you know they were drunk at a party and they you know grabbed somebody's butt while they were dancing or and I think those things are are going to be really uncomfortable because we can all agree like you said that that Roger Ailes is is a monster and but I think that it's a little bit more difficult to convince people that something that men think is part of the dating game is something that's act- that women actually don't like. It does seem that no one, n- none of the prominent men that we've ticked off here were possibly having the conversation with themselves or their version of Aaron saying, wait a minute, is this wrong? Like they had to have known it was wrong. Mm-hmm. So maybe do you think that this is just the first wave, like the clear aggressors, and then we're going to really start hashing out gray area and naming people and there are going to be two sides to the sexual harassment story, like right. two legitimate sides? I, I do think that. And I've actually been thinking about that a lot this week. This is reminding me a lot of the campus sexual assault kind of debate a few years back, maybe four or five years back, there was this huge groundswell of support for alleged victims of sexual assault on college campuses and people siding with women who are speaking up about being sexually assaulted against the colleges. And the Obama administration took this big move to name schools that were violating Title IX. And there was this huge groundswell. And then what ended up happening is things kind of fell apart. And now we're seeing a backswing. We're seeing the pendulum going back the other way. The UVA Rolling Stone story sowed a lot of seeds of doubt because the writer didn't follow up and just assumed that what one woman told her was true without actually saying, okay, I believe you and I'm going to f- to check with these people to make sure that right. this is a real well, thing. The, the truth is the most prominent tales of campus rape, which were the Duke lacrosse case and the Rolling Stone Virginia case, those were both disproved. Right. And there is a lot of question about the third most prominent, which is the Columbia mattress case. I mean, all I know is that in right-wing media, And I don't even mean crazy right wing media. You know, Mm -hmm. you read the National Review, they will constantly assert that nothing she says is true. And there are other, you know, allegations. Right. Well, there was that that guy was accused of sexual assault and abuse in, I think, four, three or four other cases. And one of them, he was convicted and the girl graduated and then he appealed and she had just started a new job. And so she didn't want to go back for the appeal. And so his conviction was overturned. He groped her at a party. So, I mean, this is somebody who had been accused a bunch of times, but there is a ton of gray area and out with that case. And that's a great example. One of the things I worry about with this kind of sexual harassment hashtag me Too groundswell is that we're going to get to the point where one side is saying any woman speaking up anonymously about any man must be believed 100 mm-hmm. percent. And that man must be punished on the ground on the basis of her People words. People say that about the campus rape issue. Like we right. should default to believing the victims. Right. Like, and well, I, and I, criminal I, justice? I yeah. think that we should default to if somebody speaks up and says this thing happened to me that hurt me and it caused me pain, then we should default to being sympathetic to that person. But we shouldn't default to punishing the person that they say. We should default to to listening, not necessarily believing. Right. Listening and supporting. So there there are still defamation laws. Right. So there are still ways uh, in civil lawsuits to reclaim one's reputation. Right. But I'm thinking about the campus rape example. And there there's it's not just the feeling of, well, where do we stand as a society and how do you define that? There is a tangible standard of evidence Mm -hmm. that the Justice Department is advocating or was advocating under Obama Mm -hmm. and a different standard that they're advocating under Betsy DeVos. Mm -hmm. And so it used to be preponderance of the evidence. 
evidence, which is just 50.01%. Yep. And now they want to go to a higher standard. Is there a, the equivalent of that? So we're not really talking about putting harassers on trial right. per se, but is there a tangible equivalent of that of where you think we're going, maybe where we were now in terms of what it took to define someone as a harasser mm-hmm. and maybe where we're going? Yeah, but I do think that there is a kind of mechanism for putting people on trial. And that's, you know, you see journalists who are publishing stories about this and journalists have a standard of of evidence to publish these stories. And I actually think one thing that's different about this compared to the campus rape thing is a lot of times in campus rape, it's it's something that happened in one room with two people and they were the only ones there in a lot of cases. In some cases. And in these cases, it's he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said. And and it sometimes happened at work and you can take screenshots and you can save emails and you can leave a paper trail. There's an actual opportunity for people, women who are feeling like they're victimized and harassed, to empower themselves to be believed and protect themselves for if when they do speak up from legal backlash. Okay, so I, as I said, and I started this interview, I'm really interested in the gray areas. Here's something that I've been thinking about: How should women react to this? Now, on the one hand, it far be it for me to ever tell a woman how to react, but I have been seeing some differences. So Rebecca Hersher, who I talked about on the show, is someone who was harassed by Michael Oreskes, who was the vice president of NPR. And she went on the record with uh, David Folk and Flick, and she talked about how at the time she recognized that there was this power imbalance, and she talked about how she felt diminished, and she immediately went to human resources. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking at this like that is a paragon of exactly how to deal with that Mm -hmm. i don't want to fault the people who came before and didn't do that but what can we do to say there's i like we understand this is trauma causing and there's a lot of downside but Mm -hmm. there really is a best way to deal with these harassment instances and to sort of make that a norm to make that the default setting right i think you're absolutely right the fact of the matter is despite how painful it is If you want justice, you have to seek justice. And the proper channels for seeking justice in a workplace environment are through HR. In best case scenarios, the company should be looking out for the interests of the women who are sexually harassed. But I was just thinking about this yesterday. You know, unions protect individuals, protect Mm -hmm. workers. If you're part of a union, you have somebody coming to bat for you. If, you know, your HR department is failing, if you're being sexually harassed, you go through the proper channels and your HR department is failing you. So I think that this is a really good example of how she did the right thing. But also, you know, it's always good to have somebody to have your back and organize. Unions unions aren't great in terms human unions are there are blunt instruments and they're there to keep you from getting fired. They're there to keep harassers from getting fired in some instances. In some instances, yeah. But I think like, you know, I'm thinking about like the WGA and I'm thinking about, you know, the big powerful unions that right. that like writers type unions. Right. And those places can in, in their best iteration right. fight for and the a, interest of the work, alleged abuse. Yes. And a lot of times the dynamic is the worker is getting harassed by the boss. The boss isn't mm-hmm. in the union. The union is. Right. And that's part yeah. of what makes it harassment. Like, I, of course, anybody can harass anybody. But the power asymmetry means that there's a lower threshold for behavior being offensive. But in terms of turning instances of harassment that the person's harassed and they don't feel powerless and they don't feel that this has set them back in an insurmountable way. How does that change? I don't think I, as a guy with a podcast, can do it, but I think it is changing. How does it change more? How does it, again, become the norm so that 
you know, this isn't laughed off and that people don't feel there is no recourse. I think it's going to be a slog. And that's part of the reason when this first came when this first started that I thought I was a little cynical about it. I thought it was going to kind of be a flash in the pan like most hashtags. It's really easy to participate in a hashtag. It's really easy to retweet something. It's literally the least you can do while still not doing nothing. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I think that's Twitter's new yeah, the, slogan. Yeah. The least you can do yeah. while still not doing nothing. And that's also their strategy for targeting trolls and harassers <laughs> and Russian bots. But I thought at first I was like, oh, this is probably just going to be a flash in the pan. But now it's seeming to have some legs. It seems like people are willing to put in the work and it is going to take work. I think it's going to take a lot of uncomfortable conversations. I think right now it's going to it feels like kind of lancing a wound. It's going to feel like there's a lot that has been going on like right in front of our faces for a while. But I think that it's going to kind of get to a point of some normalcy if people are willing to continue to put in the work, if they're willing to continue to talk about this, if they're willing to continue to support women who come forward and to examine their own behavior, men and women in the workplace, because we can both be harassers. Erin Gloria Ryan, thank you so much, Erin. Thank you. And now the spiel. I saw a tweet quoting a new survey headline, new poll. Most Americans say this is the lowest point in U.S. history. And then the publication, I don't want to name it. I'm kind of over it. But the publication displayed a picture of Donald Trump, which I assume to mean most Americans say this is the lowest point in U.S. history because this guy. Or even something like when you look up lowest point in U.S. history in the dictionary, you see a picture of this guy which isn't how dictionary illustrations work, let alone how dictionaries work. But when you think about it, the Trump picture under that headline about that poll, it's kind of a Rorschach test. If you love Trump and you see a poll saying lowest point in U.S. history, you say, exactly, that's why he was elected. He alone can solve it. And after that accomplishment, he's going to reform the dictionaries and standardize the illustration policy. But my reaction to this poll that said my fellow Americans thought this was the lowest point ever in U.S. history wasn't because of Trump or wasn't even, ah, therefore Trump. It was, man, do I sometimes hate my fellow Americans. This is now worse than that time, that long, long stretch of time where you could be owned by another American? Worse than the Civil War? What if the tweet weren't accompanied by a visual of Trump, but by a bar chart? And it'd be labeled battlefield deaths at the hands of other Americans from 2000 to 2017, maybe 0.5 a year. There's a couple of fraggings going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then you'd go back and you'd see battlefield deaths at the hands of other Americans, 1861 to 1865. It'd be 100, 150,000 a year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so much worse now. I think what that poll answer points to is mostly the idiocy of my fellow Americans. Then again, if we're talking about the idiocy of my fellow Americans, yeah, Trump would be a good illustration of that. Then I realized I made a mistake. Well, what I did was I read the headline and thought it was accurate. It wasn't exactly accurate. Here is the real finding. Let's go to WILX Lansing, Michigan. 50% of Americans say that right now is the worst period in American history that they can remember. That's according to the annual Stress in America survey from the American Psychological Association. So the question didn't ask respondents to go back to the Battle of Vicksburg. It just asked people to evaluate the current condition and then compare it to conditions during their lifetime. But as you heard, 50% said worst ever. This too, I believe, is grossly inaccurate. 
It might be defensible if you look at very young people saying it. If the worst thing you ever saw was 9-11, a case can be made that based on the general lack of terrorist attacks afterwards and the election of your first black president and the Cubs winning the World Series and that swift suppression of the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad, you know, things rebounded pretty good. But now, now you're thinking, ah, I'm not so sure. So it's kind of logical for a very young person, a millennial, to say this is the worst time ever. But it's not just millennials who said now's the worst. It was everybody. Here's Arthur C. Evans, CEO and executive vice president of the American Psychological Association, which did the poll. A majority of Americans believe that this is the lowest point in our history. What's striking about that is that we found that that is true across the generations. That's true for people who lived through World War II, the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Era. What? Americans older than 72... That was the oldest cohort in the poll. 56% of them said this was the lowest point ever. They were alive when Hitler was alive. They were alive during legal segregation when 70-year-olds were children, when everyone in their 80s were teenagers. The top causes of death in America, much like today, were heart disease, stroke, cancer, and accidents. But causes of death, numbers five through seven, were infant death, influenza slash pneumonia and tuberculosis. We have gone from an infant mortality rate from 30 to 6. In the lifetime of octogenarians, we've gone from 50,000 people dead each year from tuberculosis to fewer than 500. As, by the way, the population is more than doubled. Tuberculosis, let me give you a little, here's a reading from tbfacts.com about how great tuberculosis is for you. When TB wakes up and gets into the lungs, it eats them from the inside out, slowly diminishing their capacity, causing the chest to fill up with blood and the liquidy remains of the lungs. The suffering patients cannot get enough oxygen and respiratory failure occurs. They can no longer breathe and they drown. It's painful. It's drawn out. It's an awful way to die. But before any of this can happen, the disease weakens you, diminishes your capacity for work, puts your family and friends and anyone else you come into contact with at risk. Individual death is only part of the problem. Well, that was then. It's not now. And how do we process it? We forget it. We take it for granted. Here's the deal with progress. It'll happen. It'll march along. It'll deliver great benefits. But progress also comes with a curse. And it's that no one will remember how bad things used to be. We will always bemoan our current state, totally discounting any strides we've made, staring inwardly and ignorantly. I think it is a slight form of malpractice for the American Psychological Association to put out this study. I think there might be a threat of a contagion effect for putting out these notions that things have never been worse. There was no effort that I saw to say, well, maybe people are wrong. There were some tips to manage stress, you know, breathing techniques, which are easier when you don't have tuberculosis. How about the simple asterisk that notes, of course, on average, all the people answering the survey saying how bad it is to live now are living longer, getting richer, not getting conscripted into deadly wars. They're less likely to know murder victims, less likely to be a murder victim. They're discriminated against less frequently. They have access to drugs that work much better to schools that teach more, and oh yeah, to magic boxes in their pockets that contain answers to every question known to man and every song ever recorded. Yeah, life sucks. I don't blame either party for this. It's an ecumenical idea, the notion that the other party's president is less than a disaster. It's not something you can say anymore these days. Now, as I'm saying this, I know you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but the guy we have now kind of is a disaster. 
Well, look, Donald Trump is objectively speaking the least qualified man ever to be elected president. And he's done nothing to show an inkling of the ability to address or surmount those shortcomings. But he hasn't sent 6,000 men and women off to their deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he hasn't, like LBJ and Nixon, wasted, absolutely wasted 60,000 American lives in Vietnam. He has a ways to go to be the worst. Oh, he could get there. But if you think this is the lowest point, you have no idea. It is, in fact, the idea that life sucks so much that gave rise to Donald Trump in the first place. We're ahistoric and histrionic. We careen around and light upon bold but foolish solutions to manageable problems. Now, I know that my series of life-affirming self-help tapes, damn it, you don't know how good it is, are not going to sell well. But I've got a right to speak my truth. Right, American Psychological Association? I can't believe how fundamentally unperceptive my fellow Americans are. I don't think they have ever been this bad. This is, in terms of mass ignorance, the lowest point in American history that I could ever think. Oh, shit. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader. He believes this is tied with the worst period of Trump being on Twitter that he could remember tied with every minute except for there were these 11 minutes once the gist was also produced by mary wilson who thinks that this is the lowest point in project runway's 54 season history that she could remember dress like your favorite gourd heidi try steve lichtai is executive producer of slate podcasts he believes this is the worst period of astro fan snootery that he could recall the gist When judged by the standard of not mentioning the dire consequences of tuberculosis, this is the worst period of our podcast ever. Umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.